Welcome and or bienvenue to Fangraphs Audio. I'm your host, Carson Sestouli. It's hard to articulate uh, exactly what you're about to hear in this particular episode of the podcast. I could tell you the topics, and in fact, I will momentarily. However, it probably makes the most sense to tell you uh, that, in fact, what I've done is just invite Mr. Dave Cameron and Jonah Carey onto the program and let them talk about whatever they'd like. But if we must get down to brass tacks, what you can expect to hear over the next 30 minutes or so is a bit of time traveling back to the beginning of the new year when the Texas Rangers signed Adrian Beltre to a six-year contract. We discuss some of the more unique qualities about Beltre, both as a player and personality. Moving on, we use a couple of articles written by Cameron and Carey as an entry point into a conversation about the Oakland A's and exactly what it is they're up to and how, in fact, they might maximize their payroll. That leads us quite effortlessly into a status update on Jonah Carey's book, The Extra 2%. And on a general note, one can expect to find the usual amount of vitriol and invective being tossed back and forth. All that and more on this particular edition of Fangraphs Audio. Yes, it is another white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Joining us are uh, two esteemed guests. One of them is our full-time employee from the American South, or at least close to it, I guess, uh, Dave Cameron. Dave, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm pretty sure North Carolina qualifies as the South, especially when you uh, go to go out to eat around here, you quickly realize you are indeed in the South. Is that uh, because of the cuisine or because of the people you see there? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, they, you know, the North Carolina Fair, they fry butter, so that should just tell you all you need to know. That's a thing you can fry? You, you, they actually sell fried butter, yes. What does that even mean? Like, is it a, is it spreadable or you just put it in your mouth? No, they like coat it in some kind of breading and fry the whole thing and then you have like this gooey, I, I've never eaten it, but I've heard of the glorious myth of fried butter. Do people just die as soon as they eat it? <laughs> I think that it's kind of a population control. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that, yeah, there's sort of a natural selection thing going on there. Uh, well good, very good. I'm glad to have that information uh, preserved uh, um, by in, in audio form now. Um, our other guest is, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, um, dedicated listeners, typically uh, we don't have you know out-and-out rookies on the uh, podcast, but this guy has distinguished himself pretty, pretty seriously in just a short time at Fangraphs, so I'm thinking he might be up to the challenge. Um, he also happens to be one of, I guess not America's, one of Canada's great podcasters. His name is Jonah Carey. Jonah, how are you? I'm good. I was, you know, fried butter doesn't impress me though when I come from a land where you put cheese curds, gravy, and yes, if you want to go one more, foie gras on French fries. So in your face, American <laughs> stuff. Wait, people put foie gras on poutine? Yes, this is now the, the kind of the gourmet version. I have to say that it's not necessarily authentic Quebecois. It's kind of being done by highfalutin places and other places uh, in the world. But I respect any ability to kick it up a notch when it comes to the hard things. I will say, um, and I, I normally don't bring uh, Mrs. Carson Zestouli into the podcast, but she's in the other room. And when I said the words foie gras and poutine, she, she sort of fakes through up in the other room. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I will say, though, uh, of course, I grew up – well. The layers of uh, intrigue here. Jonah, you are currently in New Hampshire, yes, I believe. Um, and in fact, I am from New Hampshire. And I could tell you, not necessarily in Concord, but on the west side of Manchester, New Hampshire, there's a huge uh, French-Canadian population, uh, mm. people who were hired to work for the mills, uh, of course, that are sort of being refashioned at this point. But there, uh, you can get poutine on Manchester's west side. I did not know uh, that. So if you ever grow uh, nostalgic uh, for your Franco 
Canadian past, then you can just uh, drive over to Manchester and enjoy some. Well, I'll tell you, uh, my the other part of my past on the other side of my family is Hungarian, and, and one of my favorite Hungarian restaurants in the world is in downtown Manchester, walking distance from the ballpark, as a matter of fact. Is that so right? you've got all kinds of culinary adventures waiting for you in the glorious town of Manchester. It is a weird town. I, I wish I actually had explored it more. We could talk more about Manchester off-air, maybe. <laughs> maybe we'll do that. Maybe we'll do that. Um, but right, uh, so it, it, it deserves to be noted, though, that now Jonah Carey, uh, famous um, at, at every reach of the Internet and uh, baseball uh, baseball writing in general, uh, has in fact uh, joined the Fangraphs team. So it's good to have you, and that's a good choice uh, on your part, uh, from your part, Dave Cameron. Yeah, well, I think when uh, Jonah Carey becomes available, you know, you, you throw the Carl Crawford contract at him and just hope he says, yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute, the Carl Crawford contract was on the table? We are renegotiating right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, actually, uh, man, segue of all segues, talk about big contracts being thrown at people. Uh, because we haven't had sort of a, uh, a roundtable-type recording in a couple weeks here, uh, broken up by the new year, at least the, uh, I guess, the, what... It's uh, the Augustine. Is it the Augustine calendar we use? The Gregorian. The Gregorian calendar. Um, on uh, January fifth, Beltre, uh, Adrian Beltre, uh, officially signed a six-year, ninety-six million-dollar contract with the Texas Rangers. We haven't discussed it uh, on the podcast, but we should. We have two people who are wholly qualified to do so. Uh, let's start with the full-time employee, though. Uh, Dave, uh, I guess. I want to hear your general thoughts, but if you would also please address the fact that uh, the Rangers have signed a player, a third, an excellent third baseman, when they already have at least nominally a third baseman in Michael Young. Yeah, so Adrian Beltre is like a, a really interesting guy and one that I have been out in front of the uh, bandwagon for for about six years. I defended him almost his entire tenure in Seattle when he became uh, known as a bust for the contract that he got and didn't hit like he did in Los Angeles, even though if he would have hit like he did in Los Angeles, he would have been the best player of all time. Uh, you know, and then he had the big year in Boston and people kind of thought, oh, well, he's just a contract year guy. And so, you know, Beltre is kind of a polarizing object. Uh, a lot of people not a big fan of this particular skill set. They don't buy into his defensive value. Uh, they don't like the fact that he, you know, doesn't wear a cup. <laughs> there's, some, there's some interesting things that go along with Beltre. Um, but I actually like the signing for Texas. I mean, if you look at the risk they were willing to take on Cliff Lee, Cliff Lee is certainly a phenomenal pitcher. And I think most people were okay with them offering, you know, six years and $140 million to retain Cliff Lee. I actually think Beltre is a better bet than Lee going forward, just simply the nature of hitter versus pitcher attrition, the fact that, you know, Lee is a, kind of a fringy stuff guy who really gets by on locating the ball perfectly. If you're okay with giving Cliff Lee, you know, six years and $140 million, to me, 580 with a vesting option for Adrian Beltre is actually a better deal, and I think Texas might actually have come out on the right side of this thing, even though, you know, they might have already had Michael Young on the roster, but let's be honest, anyone who saw the World Series saw that Michael Young was kind of a DH playing third base anyway, and this gives them a chance to get some uh, improved defense behind Brandon Webb and some of these uh, ground ball pitchers they have on their staff um, and allows Young to probably play his more natural first base DH uh, bench utility kind of role, which is what his skill set's best suited for anyway. And so so you don't think, um, I mean, you know, the word sunk cost, you know, might occur next to Michael Young's name now. Is that, I mean, is, is that totally a separate issue or or is that something that the Rangers and their fans should be concerned about? 
Well, I think the thing with Young is, you, you know, he's obviously making a lot of money, I think $16 million a year for the next three years, which is why they can't trade him. No one's going to deal for that contract. But when you have a guy like Michael Young on your team, what you don't want to do is say, okay, well, I can't upgrade my team because I'm stuck with this guy who I gave too much money for. That's kind of the throwing good money after bad kind of idea of where, you know, okay, I'm going to let this contract, this mistake that I already make, keep me from making further good moves in order to try and justify this mistake. That's kind of the self-fulfilling prophecy that you don't want to have happen when you sign a bad contract. And so I like that the Rangers were flexible enough to say, yeah, we've signed Michael Young, uh, but Adrian Beltre makes us a better team. This is a better upgrade than signing any of the DHs and leaving Young at third base. We upgrade our defense. We actually up- upgrade our offense as well. And, you know, if we have to make Michael Young a DH, we're going to do it in order to make our team better. Okay, Jonah, uh, I mean, you can take one of two tacks here. Uh, either, you know, just sort of like your, you know, uh, I guess organic reaction to the trade or if you want to respond to Cameron's analysis. No, I mean, I had my own reaction, uh, which was one of the things that I've written a grand total of four articles so far for Fangress, and two of them have had a similar theme, which is the idea that um, there are stats out there that don't fully capture the effects of a given player. And, and there's a couple of things going on with Beltre. Number one, when you have a truly elite defender like Beltre, and I don't care what you think of his hitting in Seattle or anything anywhere else, it is unquestionably the case that he's a perennial gold glove candidate. When you have someone like that, it, it might do things that are beyond the scope of what we're able to measure with whatever, FIP or TRA or Sierra or any other stat that's out there uh, that's an advanced pitching stat. Namely that, you know, every time somebody catches a ground ball that was going to go through the hole or catches a line drive that was going to go into the gap, the pitcher can last a little bit longer, and that saves the bullpen. And then that means that the injuries are less likely, and you're going to be able to go to higher leverage guys later in the game. And this idea of chaining events makes a big difference. And and I'm getting behind the idea, you know, as much as we the, the whatever revolution the last two, three years, both in analytics and, and with team analysis has been, oh, let's focus on defense, I don't even think it's enough. I think that there's even more uh, that we could look at. You know, if you have a good bullpen, that saves your rotation. If you have a good rotation, that saves your bullpen. And if you have a good defense, that saves everything. So, you know, I'm on board with that. And from an offensive standpoint, I think, again, our stats are not adequate. When you look at Adrian Beltre, you know, he did play in Seattle for quite a few years. And you could adjust his production and say, well, the average park factor at Safeco Field was blah, blah, blah. That's very nice, except that to left field and left center especially, it was horrendously more difficult and remains horrendously more difficult to hit than it is to try to yank the ball out and right, which is not nearly as hard, quite frankly. I, I would argue that there may not, might not be any park that would hurt any individual hitter over the last 10 years more than Safeco Field specifically hurt Adrian Beltre. And we cannot capture that in war or in whatever, batting runs added, any of those stats. There, we just have not come to terms with that kind of granular analysis, at least in the analytical community. It's certainly the case that if you're the Boston Red Sox and you're trying to decide, do we sign this guy? They know. I mean, they don't need to look at war. I mean, they've got uh, proprietary uh, metrics up the wazoo. But when it comes to the rest of us and we're going with whatever we have to date, there's just not enough out there. So I think that you need to bump Beltre's value up. You need to say his defense might be worth more than we think, and his offense might have been affected in a negative manner more than we think by some of the negative parts that he played in. And maybe the fact that he hit as well as he did in Fenway last year is not a fluke, and we shouldn't expect regression. Maybe that's his true level of talent. So what I hear you sort of saying now is you're kind of uh, maybe um, drawing our attention to or celebrating these sort of mysteries. Uh, that, you know, I know that... Uh, one thing I've enjoyed that Cameron has said often is, you know, with regard to, uh, for example, this this past season, Josh Hamilton's 
BABIP, or what we might call an inflated BABIP, he said, well, yeah, on the one hand, we could say it's inflated. On the other hand, we might say that, you know, for this season in particular, you know, Josh Hamilton just essentially, like, created this skill for himself where he was hitting the ball that hard that this BABIP is somehow representative of his true talent, maybe for this season at least. It sounds like what you're saying maybe about Adrian Beltre is that he has a skill set that – you know, he's a case of, of a player with with such a unique skill set or, or a unique you know a way of implementing that skill set that that we ought to be careful about how much we think we know about him. To some extent, that's true, but I think the broader point is that the metrics that we have can only measure whatever we program them to measure. And to date, we don't have perfect metrics, and part of that has to do with. Uh, you know, field FX not really being in play for analysts and pitch FX that there's only about three or four people out there. Mike Fast is one. Josh Kalk obviously got swallowed up by the Rays. I mean, there aren't that many out there that are free agents, so to speak, that are doing that kind of analysis. And same with hit FX, where, you know, something like Josh Hamilton Babip, it would be really great if we had all kinds of stats that had to do with velocity and backspin and all this stuff on every single batted ball in the major leagues. But of course, we don't have that. It's very possible that Josh Hamilton just hits the bejesus out of the ball, or at least did in 2010, and that's the reason that his BABIP was quote-unquote inflated. He just crushed the thing all over the place. I mean, you know, if you want to put a naked eye test on it, it sure looked like he crushed the ball all season. So, I mean, that's certainly possible, too. So I do think that Beltre does have unique skills, and I think that the the point about extraordinary players, whatever their ability might be, whether it's hitting, fielding, pitching, whatever... They might start to become outliers in our statistical analysis. Maybe we have a hard time coming to terms with them. But even if you go to the run-of-the-mill players, I hesitate to just say, oh, this guy's BABIP was 30 points above average last year. Let's go ahead and regress it. He's going to come back to the mean, and this is what's going to happen next year. It's not so easy. You've got age curves. You've got things that we don't know about. You know, I'm still convinced that, that it is the case that if a player gets divorced or something like that, his, his performance legitimately is affected. And I would actually love to see a study on that. I think that would be really interesting. There are 55,000 things that go on with each of these players. Uh, and despite the fact that we wish they were stat generating robots, they're not. I am the biggest believer in uh, objective analysis possible, but you also have to understand that there are limits to our analysis and the limits are put forth by whatever tools we have available to us. Now, I just want to say uh, one thing about that, Jonas. You, you said that, uh, you know, looking at Josh Hamilton with the naked eye, uh, we might be able to uh, understand some things about him. This is not uh, tagged as explicit on iTunes, so we at least need a partially clothed eye, just FYI on that. Gotcha. Uh, Cameron, back to you. Just a quick thing with regard to Adrian Beltre. That thing he does where he hits the home run off his knee, did he do that yeah. in Seattle? He did that in Seattle. It's one of, like, you know, Beltre's got some of the uh, most unique quirks of any player in baseball, and the home run off the knee, uh, he's also got one where he hits the home run on a ball that's literally over his head, so he lifts the bat, like, over his helmet in order to hit the ball out of the park. It's really astounding, some of these balls that he hits. And then, you know, he'll chase the slider that's, you know, wildly outside, bouncing into the opposing dugout, so he still thinks he can hit it and swinging and missing. And so, you know, is one of those players that can look really just amazing, and then unbelievably terrible in the same at bat. Is he to you sort of like, uh, I, I don't know, in, in some way kind of like a prototypical version of one type of player we get out of Latin America, which is like this like like super physical player, uh, you know, that, that you can imagine scouts would be uh, drooling over, um, but maybe with some, some quirks to his game that, uh, you know, maybe uh, we wouldn't see out of a polished college player, for example. Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, Adrian Beltre actually signed when he was 15 years old. He was so good that the Dodgers rushed to sign him early, and uh, they ended up getting fined for that. But I think we see the uh, development of a kid who essentially signed as an eighth grader and has <laughs> been playing professional baseball ever since. Didn't really 
have a whole lot of the, in the way of, you know, uh, developing polish. It was just like, holy cow, are you good? He got to the majors at 19. Uh, this guy's been living on this physical talent forever. And I think there's some resentment that comes along with that kind of skill set as we look at him. Maybe he's not as refined as we would like, and there's some glaring flaws that we wish he would fix. And so people kind of hold that against him, and they miss the fact that the talent is just so good that the rest of it doesn't matter all that much. Okay. Um, well, actually, let's. I'd like to shift uh, to a team that, that tried, actually, to... Uh, I think they were certainly one of the, the finalists for Adrian Beltre, uh, vying, uh, vying for Beltre in the free agent market, and those are the uh, Oakland A's. Uh, both you and Jonah have written articles just today, Monday, uh, about the A's. Um, if you want to comment on Beltre and the A's, uh, that would be totally acceptable. But I definitely would like you to comment upon uh, some of the moves that uh, Billy Bean, the Oakland G- GM Billy Bean, has been making this offseason. He's been spending a lot of money on free agents, or not just free agents, um, but specifically relief pitching free agents, and we're used to hearing Billy Bean being a sort of general manager who's going to exploit inefficiencies. Uh, we're also used to hearing at Fangraphs that relief pitchers are probably uh, hardly ever worth as much as they're being paid. Uh, so to you I offer, what's the dizzy with that? Yeah, I think the interesting thing is if you look at the A's offseason, and this is what I kind of wrote in my post today, is this seems like plan X or plan Z or something far down the list of what the A's actually wanted to do. I mean, we saw they won the bidding for Iwakuma, but they couldn't come to terms with him. They threw a big offer at Adrian Beltre for the second winner in a row. He wouldn't sign with them. Clearly has no interest in playing in Oakland. Uh, so then they went after Lance Berkman to be like a DH and a switch-hitting power bat in the middle of their lineup, and he wouldn't sign with them either. So then they were like, okay, fine, we'll go get Josh Willingham, who's a little bit cheaper. Now we have $10 million laying around that we weren't planning on having because we were trying to go get all these other guys. What do we do? Well, hey, look, there's some relievers available. I guess that's what we'll take. And so, you know, I guess my point isn't necessarily uh, that the A's really came out and said, man, bullpen, so the new market inefficiency, we're going to have like 13 relief pitchers, we're going to have a 20-man bullpen, this is going to be amazing. Uh, I think they just said, you know, we got $10 million to spend, we think we might be able to contend, let's go get the best guys we can, oh crap, the best guys we can get are relievers, oh well. So so this is a case where where I, um, it's just they basically had the money lying around then? Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea, is that, you know, uh, there's the, you know, uh, theory in fantasy baseball like you have to spend all of your money and so you interestingly sometimes see at the end of auction drafts is these guys who are not nearly worth what they're going for going for way too much money because owners don't want to have you know eight or nine dollars sitting on the books that they didn't spend on anyone because that's just useless so they'll spend like you know nine dollars on a backup catcher because he's marginally better than the next backup catcher and having that money sitting in the bank doesn't do them any good and so i think that we have something similar with oakland if if billy bean has the budget to say spend 70 million dollars or 75 million dollars whatever it is this winter it doesn't do him any good to try and catch the texas rangers with 65 million dollars spent like he doesn't get a bonus for saving his owners ten million dollars he gets his bonus for making the playoffs so he's going to try and make his team as good as he can under the allowance that he has and you know if he has another ten million dollars to spend and there's a couple free agents on the market that improve his team by one win he might as well go get that win because he's not going to get a credit for having a ten million dollar savings right now uh joda to you we, we saw that those relievers were uh was it brian fuentes was one of them and mm-hmm. uh the other name is escaping me right now grant, grant balfour yeah, yeah right balfour uh, Jonah, I mean, do you do you view it in the same way that Cameron does? It's just sort of like a leftover money hanging around? Uh, I do to some extent, but I'll offer uh, two alternate theories as well. 
Number one is they now have something like eight good relief pitchers. What is stopping them from trading one or two or three of the incumbent good pitchers that they already have? Why can't they explore the market for Mike Wirtz or Blevins or Breslow or any of those guys? Uh, Ziegler, I mean, these are all attractive commodities to other teams. They're relatively inexpensive. They're not going to cost a two-year contract. It might be something like you know, one year, one million or two million, or even if they're pre-arb, it's a few hundred thousand dollars. They might go out and try to turn those guys into prospects. And then if you do that, then you're saying, okay, you know, we have put put forth uh, two two-year contracts worth a combined $18 million. We've sacrificed some draft picks, but in return, we've turned around and traded our incumbent guys and restocked our farm system. So I think that could absolutely be in play. And whenever a move is analyzed, I just think that it's premature to say, well, this is the end of it. You know, there, there's always other possibilities. And I'm not just saying that because the A's and Billy Bean and David Force are creative people. I would say it if it was the Royals or the Nationals or the Pirates, too. We can never know until we get down to it what's going to happen. So I think that's one. And two, you know, it's a very interesting point, um, today's point about the fantasy baseball phenomenon. I do think that's true with the vast majority of teams. But I wonder if that's the optimal strategy because I, I, I reject the fact that, uh, and I'm not saying that Dave is asserting this, I'm saying that some teams might do this anyway, that when you get before openings, basically when you have to spend your $260 uh, in fantasy money, I don't, I don't buy that at all. I mean, to me, money is a uh, very dynamic asset that can be used in a number of ways. And uh, listen, I, I hate to keep bringing them up uh, over and over, but this is just the example that I go with because I spent two and a half years of my life studying these guys. But I can tell you that the Rays don't do it and don't think of it that way. And the reason that they don't is because they have all kinds of other options. So right now they absolutely slashed their payroll to the bone. And they've got, there are still a few guys out there, but they didn't go out and, and, and spend a lot of money for any relief pitchers. They did get Kyle Farnsworth one year, three mil, just over three mil, but they didn't give any multi-year deals out. They waited out the DH market. And you know what? They're probably going to quote unquote leave money on the table. If they thought they'd have a $50 million payroll this year, I don't think they're going to get to it by opening day. But this is not necessarily a problem. There are a bunch of ways that you could spend that money. Number one is you get to the trade deadline. You're three or four games off the pace in the division or the wild card. And you say, hey, wait a minute. Prince Fielder. Well, the Brewers experiment didn't work out. Zach Greinke came down with a case of leprosy. All of a sudden, they're selling. Oh, Prince Fielder's available. Perfect. I'm going to trade you two prospects, and I'm also going to pick up all of his salary. And that way, it'll be a more attractive offer to you because I've saved that six, seven, eight million dollars. That is one uh, possibility. A number one is another one is, and the Rays are obviously in a unique situation, but they have 12 draft picks in the first two rounds. Well, they're going to need something like 12 to 15 million dollars to sign those guys. That's money too. Another one is you have player X. In the case of the Rays, it would be David Price. But pick your favorite team, whoever the guy is who has two or three or four years of service time and is very good and you keep it, clearly want to keep him, why don't you offer the guy a five-year contract and see what he says? There are just all kinds of ways to do it. And I don't like the fact that, you know, our payroll is going to be $70 million and we better spend every penny of the $70 million. I'm not insinuating that's what the A's are doing specifically. It's possible that they make trades. It's possible that they offer whatever, a long-term deal for Derek Barton or whatever it is that they want to do. All I'm saying is there are all kinds of ways to skin a cat, and I would hope that baseball teams would be more creative than saying, this is our money, we better spend it now while the getting's good. Uh, Cameron, do you want to re rebut that, or are you going to agree to disagree with Jonah? Well, I agree with Jonah from a, uh, the perspective of I wish this was how teams operated, and I have no, uh, I have a, I can easily believe that the Rays operate that way and maybe a couple other franchises, but I know that for most teams, 
they operate much lower, like a corporate accounting structure where they say, this is my budget for my major league team, this is my budget for my draft scouting, this is my budget for my international scouting. They're kept very separate, uh, and for the most part, they run on a fiscal year where they say, okay, November to October, this is how much I'm going to spend in this area, and it doesn't roll over and it's not created uh, to be able to transition from one to the other. So a lot of major league teams, you know, you'll see them, making moves that they maybe otherwise wouldn't make if they were able to say, okay, if I don't sign this free agent, I can go spend, you know, $5 million on the top Latin uh, free agent this summer. I'd rather do that. Well, their owner might say, hey, you know, why does the team suck? I don't care that you just signed some 16-year-old Venezuelan. That doesn't help me. Why didn't you go get me a reliever who's going to help me win this win today? And so I think for a lot of GMs, they don't have the autonomy to do that. The Rays might be one team that's doing it that way. Uh, I know of at least six or seven teams that don't do it that way, and everything is very separate. And uh, I think that this could be an, an area where teams are going to have to say, this isn't the best way to do this. And I agree with Jonah that there's a more optimum way but I'd be interested to see how many teams actually operate that way. Yeah. Now, I, I want to jump in first, yeah, first and I want to just bat that back for one second. Uh, I totally agree with Dave. I think you can go higher than six or seven and probably add a two in front of the six or seven and talk about maybe three or four teams that don't. It is the case that that was the accounting. It's something that I tried to research as I was working on the book. It's just the fact that that's how teams operate. I mean, I've asked some GMs point blank. They didn't necessarily say it on the record, but well, they confirmed that this is the case. So I talked to a couple of scouting directors saying my idea. Certainly uh, true, and I think this goes to the the biggest. Well, I have a bunch of pet theories about baseball, and one of my biggest ones. Uh, and, and if I keep writing uh, long enough for Fangrass, probably all of them will come out. But one of them is that uh, the market inefficiency in baseball and in all sports is. Lousy ass owners. The owners <laughs> suck. Most owners have no idea what they're doing. They have a lot of money. It's their toy, and they don't care. Uh, now, I, I don't, again, I don't want to heap praise from the heavens, but I'll tell you that Stu Sternberg is a hands-off guy. He leaves it in the hands of Matt Silverman. Matt Silverman uh, talks to Andrew Friedman, and together they operate the business side of, of the uh, team and the on-field side, and there is no conflict. If the feeling is this is the best way to build a team, and this is what our scouts feel, and blah, 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 and this is the way we're going to go about it. We're not going to worry about it. And I can guarantee you if Mark Cuban owns a Major League Baseball team down the road, the same thing is going to happen. And there are a few other proactive, smart guys that happen to be very wealthy who could do this too. But for the most part, this is, you know, Bud Selig's cabal, and he's going to let in who he wants to let in, and it's his poker buddies or whoever the heck it is. And these aren't necessarily brilliant businessmen with great strategies, or better yet, smart guys also who are willing to delegate to people who actually know what they're talking about. Stu Sternberg has never built a Major League Ball Club by himself. He knows that. He's going to hand off to someone else. I would hope that Lewis Wolf is doing the same thing in Oakland. I would hope that you have other owners, you know, Lucchino and uh, Henry and those guys in Boston, and on and on down the list. I hope that all 27 other teams are doing the same thing. If you have a great owner, that is a great start to winning games. It is just the, you know, I don't know if it's underrated or not. To me, it seems like a very underrated part of all professional sports, and it's a great way to build a winner beyond having a great GM or a manager or a cleanup hitter or everything or anything. If you start at the top and you're doing it right, good things are probably going to happen. Yeah, and actually, I'll interject here. Uh, having read recently Dane Perry's book about Reggie Jackson, um, yep. uh, this is notable because Reggie Jackson, of course, played for both Charlie Finley and then George Steinbrenner, yep. uh, two two owners who you know who have had sort of like an iron grip on their respective uh, franchises. And I guess you know they actually did have some degree of success, uh, but they also definitely meddled in the uh, in the day to day affairs at the ball club, and I think probably ultimately for the worse. Um, mm. And, and it uh, it does seem to so I mean your suggestion basically is like a good owner uh, is maybe uh, even 
more than that, a uh, a hands-off owner might be one of the first keys to success. Well, yeah, and I mean, just look at any major company, any whatever successful small business, any successful Fortune 500 company. You certainly need a good CTO and CIO and uh, VPs and assistant VPs and salespeople and PR people, marketing people. But if your CEO sucks, you're in a whole lot of trouble. I mean, this is what it comes down to, and and, and I do feel that way. I think that uh, you know, if baseball teams and all sports teams were run more like successful businesses, then we'd be in much better shape. And I think you know, not just on the obvious macro levels, but I think to the point where you would see very few, whatever, really poor signings of middle relievers. I, I think that everything would change if we had 30 good owners in baseball. And uh, I'll also interject that um, there's a cafe here in Madison, Wisconsin, but the it's the owner who's always at the bar, and uh, he always seems to be looking at you in a weird way. Do you think that's related? <laughs> totally relevant? Does it, okay, does good. it encourage you to come or does it discourage you to come? It discourages me. Yeah, I only ever go in there if I see that the owner is not the one working behind the bar. Well, maybe it's just that you're an unsavory character and that business actually goes up 40% when you're not in there. That's also a distinct possibility. Occam's um, razor, person. Yeah, um, that's not the sort of razor I use. I use <laughs> a Gillette, typically. Um, uh, okay, let's look at... Uh, well, hey, listen, we've been... Uh, um, uh, maybe purposefully, maybe not. We've been talking a lot about the Tampa Bay Rays. This will be the, a good point for, uh, for a Jonah Carey book update. Jonah, what's going on with uh, the extra 2% right now? I'll try to keep it brief because I know we got other topics to cover too, but basically the book comes out March 8th. Uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon.com, BN.com, Powell's, uh, Indie Book. If you're in Canada, then it's, uh, Indigo Chapters. They all have it available. And there was a, uh, an excerpt, a free excerpt that came out recently on Scribd.com, C-S-C-R-I-B-D.com. It features uh, the prologue of the book and also the foreword written by uh, Mark Cuban, which was actually really well done as well. Um, and I encourage people to check it out. It really, if you could not care less about the Rays, even if you're a casual baseball fan, I think people will enjoy it. It's a business book. It has it tells a story about marketing. Uh, it tells a story about a random guy from a random coal mining town in Pennsylvania who waited basically his whole life to be the manager of a major league baseball team. And, uh, you know, there are nominally some similarities to Moneyball if you've read it, but honestly, it is very different in many other ways too. Among the reasons being that I don't uh, call all scouts fat and useless. So there is that. Smart. Okay. And, uh, let's use that briefly, uh, as a segue. This will be, uh, I guess probably the last thing we're able to address here, um, so that our, uh, our devout listeners can get on their way uh, with their lives. But the Matt Garza trade. Um, that involves the Tampa Bay Rays, and I think that you saw a lot of opinions going different directions. Um, the main players, of course, are Matt Garza going from Tampa Bay to Chicago of the National League, coming back, uh, uh, you know, a couple notable players. Um, Sam Fold, who is actually a member uh, or sort of a guest, sorry, on the Jonah Carey podcast, also uh, Robinson Chirinos, um, kind of a uh, late-blossoming catcher, and uh, Brandon Geyer, a couple other guys. Uh, Jonah, your your uh, sort of uh, basic thoughts on that trade? Yeah, you know, you mentioned probably the three worst players in the trade, possibly. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, Lee, the shortstop, has got a chance to be something special. I'm a big believer, uh, I, this is the least controversial opinion of all time, but I think that we even need to double down on how important it is to go get up-the-middle players, and specifically shortstops who can catch the ball. If you have a shortstop who can catch the ball, and he's got a chance to hit, I mean, even a chance, 
let's start with that and see what we can do. I, I do believe, again, in that cascading effect. I think if you're turning double plays, you're getting your team off the field, your pitcher off the field, and, and good things are going to happen. A durable guy that can be in there playing 150-plus games every year and catching the ball is good. This guy, Lee, projects to have that skill set. He's also, you know, has some potential as a left-handed bat. I don't think he'll hit for much power. Uh, at least that's what people are saying. But he runs and he fields and he's in good shape there. And then Chris Archer is the other guy in the trade. You're talking about him as, uh, you know, maybe if, if everything works out absolutely perfectly, a future Garza that he could be a number two starter in the big leagues has very good stuff. Young guy, very good results. And that's all to the good. And I think, of course, the point with the Rays is, uh, I don't know how many teams have Jeremy Hellickson sitting there not having a job. The fact that now he does have a job because Garza's traded is all to the good. Now, maybe it's the case if you're a cynic, you could say, well, listen, Hellickson could have just bumped James Shields or, or Jeff Neiman out of the rotation and he would be in the rotation anyway. You know, that's fine too. But, you know, ultimately what this comes down to is how they allocate resources. He's three years away from free agency, Matt Garza, but they feel like, well, you know, we, we can probably do better for our limited resources, especially when we have a $35 million payroll. But listen, I don't begrudge the Cubs either. There's nothing wrong with trading prospects for win-now guy. I don't think the Cubs are going to win the division this year. In fact, I think they're going to finish fourth as currently constituted. But, you know, Garza's a valuable asset, and the fact that you do have three years of control and the fact that he is very good. You know, I know that Dave is, has brought out uh, the dreaded Aaron Harang comparison, but uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I think that, you know, Garza uh, is solid in many ways. I think the only thing that I would be concerned about is that, uh, again, if you want to talk about that cascading effect, the Rays' defense has been so good for the two, past two or three years that maybe that's part of Garza's secret to the success, as is, uh, and I like to go usually by three-year park effects, but last year, I didn't even realize this until I just looked it up just a few days ago uh, while researching a separate article, uh, Tropicana Field had the most favorable park effect for pitchers in all of baseball. More than Safeco, more than Petco, more than any other ballpark. I had no idea. I was not aware of that. Now, again, three years more reliable. But I think it speaks to Garza having some externalities in his favor. Certainly, it's the case that it's going to be hard to pitch in the AL East, and you've got the Yankees and the Red Sox. But there's also some concern that Garza was propped up by his teammates in his ballpark and all that. So, you know, I, I'm not even willing to make a sweeping statement about Garza. He could turn out to be really, really good with the Cubs, or he could kind of suck, or he could be Aaron Harang, which I guess is somewhere in between. Wait, I guess yeah, all yeah. three possibilities. Cameron, Go ahead. Cameron, can you explain the, the Aaron Harang comparison? Yeah, so like the idea from the Harang comparison was more about skill set than necessarily what I would expect from them going forward. But I think they have similarities in that they're both, uh, you know, decent strikeout guys with pretty good stuff who maybe never missed quite as many bats, or at least recently Harang hasn't missed as many bats as you might expect from a guy who throws as hard as he does and has a pretty good slider. Garza's kind of the same way, where he throws 94, he's a fly ball guy, usually fly ball, high velocity guys get a lot of strikeouts, that's kind of how they succeed. The Garza only struck out, I think, 7.1 strikeouts per nine over the last three years, which ranks 35th in Major League Baseball, and so when you're a fly ball guy with mediocre command, and, you know, the thing that you do best ranks 35th in the game, that's not really the, maybe the path to ace them that people might expect, and I think uh, Garza's postseason performance the fact that he's kind of a name guy, was a top prospect in Minnesota, got traded for Delman Young, uh, and then he's posted a low ERA. A lot of these things play into the narrative of good stuff guy who's maybe better than his peripherals. And uh, I know a lot of people like to throw the Matt Cain comparison on him as like, oh, your your fits doesn't tell the whole story because you know this and that. But I think that you know there is a realization of the fact that the Rays defense is really good and that ballpark's a pretty good place to pitch. And yeah. so when we take those things into consideration, we have to say, like, you know, if we're going to look at the ERA at face value, we're probably going to overestimate Matt Garza's 
abilities and you take him, take away those defenders, you take away that ballpark, and then he's probably not quite as good as a VRA would say. Well, that's the thing that interests me about the comparison, because Harang, uh, especially for like these last, I guess, uh, three, four years, has been sort of like notorious for, um, I guess, um, underperforming his, his, his uh, peripherals, right, his FIP and his ex-FIP. Um, I think on his career, uh, on his career now, he's got a 406 xFIP, 414 FIP, and a 433 ERA, and that those numbers have been even more pronounced over the last uh, three years. So, I, I mean, do you think, do you foresee um, that sort of switch for Garza now that he's pitching? Um, well, I mean, we could say easier league, but uh, less friendly defense and less friendly park. Yeah, I'm not going to say that he's going to underperform his exit, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, you've seen Harang's uh, ERA go up away from his exit as the Reds moved into a significantly more homer-happy ballpark. I mean, the Great American Ballpark opened, and all of a sudden Aaron Harang turned bad. I think that that's maybe a, more than a coincidence, and we need to, you know, as much as we say we understand park factors and we like to include them, it seems like uh, in times like this, where Aaron Harang gets called a homer-happy, crappy number five starter who can only get a one-year deal in the free agent market, and Matt guards is an ace, Maybe we're not uh, accounting for park factors as much as we would like to say we are. And so, you know, I think if uh, the wind starts blowing out in Wrigley, uh, Matt Garza's going to have some hard times pitching at home. And, you know, there's some small ballparks in National League Central. It's just not going to be as easy for him as you say, okay, he's a 3.8 guy in the AL. Put him in the NL, take away the DH, and all of a sudden he's one of the best starters in the league. People tried to do that with Edwin Jackson, who I've made the comparison to, and I think he's actually kind of a similar pitcher with similar stuff, similar strikeout rates when Tampa Bay traded him away. Edwin Jackson's done pretty well at times, but he went to the National League in Arizona in a small ballpark where the ball carries pretty well, and he was terrible. And so I think, you know, we need to be careful when we just say any pitcher with good stuff going from the American League to the National League is going to have a good time. Okay, uh, we're going to go now, but before we do, Dave, I need you to say uh, one nice thing about Dayton Moore before we we go. Yeah, Dayton Moore (laughs) signed Jeff Francis, who had been proclaiming all winter was going to be the bargain of the winter, and then Dayton Moore came in and decided that he wanted me to write a nice article about him, and it was worth $2 million to him. So hope you enjoyed that article, Dayton. It might be the last one I ever write about you. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, this this has been great. Um, Let's say goodbye to our guests. Uh, It was was a a debut performance uh, for the ages. His name is Jonah Carey. Thanks a lot, Jonah. Uh, thank you, Carson. I think the Francis signing proves that the market inefficiency this offseason was indeed signing Canadians. <laughs> That's right. And uh, Dave Cameron, uh, you you praised Dave Moore for signing a Canadian. You also signed uh, a Canadian yourself in, in Jonah Carey. Um, very true. So maybe uh, pre- the, the best part was, though, that I spent someone else's money on it. So that's the best way to find <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That is, that is the best way. But uh, Cameron, also, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks for having me, Carson. Okay, and this has been uh, another White Hot edition of Fangraphs Audio.